Welcome to Origins, the podcast about the money behind the money. This podcast was created by Notation, a pre-seed venture firm based in Brooklyn, New York. For these next several episodes, we asked our LP friends at Sapphire Partners to step in as our guest hosts. We asked Sapphire Partners to lead the season because they're experts in the venture ecosystem, they partner with the best early stage venture funds, and they have a deep LP network to bring exciting new voices to the show. We're thrilled to call them an LP of our own, and we're grateful to have had their support since day zero of Notation. Sapphire is hosting these next episodes in support of their Open LP initiative. Open LP is a community-sourced effort that amplifies and aggregates LP and GP voices across the venture ecosystem. So without further ado, let's get started. On this episode of Origins, we speak with Kim Liu, the president and CEO of Columbia Investment Management Company, responsible for managing the university's endowment. She came to Columbia from Carnegie Corporation, where she most recently served as CIO. She began her career at Chemical Bank as a credit analyst after receiving her BS in economics from the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. She holds an MBA from Harvard Business School, after which she joined the Prudential Capital Group and then the Ford Foundation, where she spent more than a decade first as an equity analyst and then as a senior manager responsible for private equity investments. In this conversation, we cover her career as an investor and limited partner, the investment strategy and organization at Columbia, her views on the technology and venture markets, including climate, crypto, artificial intelligence, and diversity inclusion. Well, Kim, thank you for spending the time with us today. Would love to start with some background on yourself and your family, and maybe we could start with, you know, growing up and your parents. Sure. So I am a native New Yorker. I was born in Harlem, raised in the Bronx to a Chinese immigrant father and a African-American mother. Um, Very stereotypically, my mom um, lived in housing projects in Harlem and my father's family owned a um, grocery store right across the street from the building that she grew up in. And they have only actually ever really dated each other. I was born um, when they were 17 they waited until they were grown ups to have their second kid, 24. They had my brother. Um, and before anybody asked, because everybody always asked me, yes, they're still married, <laughs> still wow. together, um, which is pretty amazing in, in this world. But, you know, here, here they are. <laughs> and it's pretty amazing. Um, went to the Bronx High School of Science here in the city, graduated, went to Penn, came back to New York then went to HBS and then came back to New York. So I keep trying to get away from this place, but it draws you in. You're either a New Yorker or you're not. And I am a New Yorker. And how did your family and upbringing influence some of the, those decisions around, you know, education and the career choices you've made? So, you know, I grew up in a family that, um, you know, I, I always say this about it always being easier to work with and manage in a team of underdogs. And I think my family felt a little bit like underdogs, right? So there was a real sense of bonding together, a real sense of everybody contributing to everybody's success in whatever way they could. And like, it was important for us to get uh, educated. And it was very important for us to work as hard as we could, to do as much as we could, right? You know, there was always a sense of, we expect you guys to do your best, And I think um, it was important. And I think we also were very conscious of the fact, at least I was, and I think my brother to the same extent, was very conscious of the fact of how much my father gave up. And so, of course, we wouldn't want to disappoint him. So we had a great childhood. 
you spent a number of years at uh, the Ford Foundation. How did you think about, you know, taking that career as a, an institutional investor and sort of pursuing that and your decision to pursue that? A friend of mine said to me, my mom works in investments. You should talk to her. And his mom was the director of research and the head of alternatives and the technology analyst, all of that at the Ford Foundation. And so he was like, just go talk to her. Maybe she can give you some advice on what you should do next. She was hiring for someone to replace her as the technology analyst. I went to meet with her. We hit it off really well. She asked me to meet with the CIO, which a woman named Linda Strump. And the two of them together was like, okay, we were hiring for a portfolio strategist to take over the technology portfolio. You don't have enough experience to do that. But if the person who heads Publix is willing to hire you, we'll create a job for you. And they created a job of equity analyst because Hal Clark was the head of the public portfolio at the time. He said, if Betty Fagan agreed to let me have a dotted line relationship with her, because I was essentially taking her job, that he was comfortable with hiring me. And she said she was. And so they created the equity analyst position. I reported to Betty and to Hal Clark for about a year, got the best advice you could possibly get from an individual from her. She said, you will never get good at this job unless you are willing to take risk. Anything you do wrong, I can fix. So just take risk. And one, I learned two things. One, you have to take risk to be good at this job. That's what we are. We are in the business of taking risk. And two, that is what a good mentor is, looks like. That is what good leadership looks like. That is what a good sponsor looks like. I want to be that person for someone else. So those are my big takeaways from her. I also think we had a culture at Carnegie of doing new managers or investing in new managers and building relationships with people who were in many ways unproven. You know, our mantra was that we didn't do first-time investors, but we did first-time funds. And we worked really hard to help these first-time managers, first-time fund managers build their business appropriately. And that that was something that we would develop skills in, like what does it take to have a good business and try to share that information with them. They would have some sort of track record that would give us a sign that they could be good investors and make good decisions and that we could build partnership around that and sort of seed new managers. And it was important to us because we knew we were price takers in almost any environment because we weren't large enough to be price makers. And so the only way that we could actually have influence is to start early in relationships. And so I think that in that same concept around like really being transparent with people and offering as much advice as you can and to really get vested in other people's success is something that people gave to me. And so I feel like I need to give that to the people on my team and I need to give that to managers that are in the ecosystem with us. Move to Columbia, much bigger place. And the ability to seed new managers is not as easy just because it's just, it's just harder to give smaller checks. We could de-risk the opportunity at Carnegie by making the check size small, by helping to build an LP base of common investors who have like-minded in the way we thought about things. And we could, we could de-risk that way. Much harder at Columbia when there's so much more capital to deploy. Staff is not that much bigger. It's operationally challenging because of the nature of, of how you're situated within the university and how much more complexity there is because there are many more constituents. You know, I had one portfolio 
Um, I still have one portfolio, but I also have, um, you know, many more schools that feed into that portfolio. So thinking about how you manage the risk and how you manage the opportunity is different. And so, you know, although it's something that I loved, I know that I can't translate it exactly the same way at Columbia, but I do want to create an environment where we take more early risk in the tradition at Columbia. Columbia traditionally liked managers that had, you know, a seven to 10 year track record. I think that creates other risk, right? I think funds have life cycles, just like people have life cycles. And so I think that, you know, there, there are things that you do and you do well when you're young, when you are able to take more risk and things that you don't do when you get older. Same thing in funds, right? There's a life cycle. They take less risks. They get more comfortable. They have other responsibilities. They have more LPs. The degrees of freedom are different. A good investor understands that and has managers across that life cycle. And so I've got to push Columbia to start thinking about taking more early risk, but that comes with time. And it's a different skill set. Analyzing returns is very different than seeing potential and building structures that de-risk around it. Absolutely. And I'd actually love to circle back a little bit on Columbia's investment strategy and how you're thinking about portfolio construction just as a, a, a way to set some context. Yeah. So again, let me compare and contrast a foundation versus endowment. And I always think that's important because people always lump them together like they're one thing. I think the the thing that they are common in is that they are mission-based. I think they're common that they're not-for-profits. They're common in that they tend to attract nerds. I think it's, a, it's kind of a nerdy group of people who decide to do this, which is nice. But they're different in many respects. So foundations, when I think about my time at Carnegie, the biggest gating factor to, that I had to solve for was liquidity. There's no inflows when you're at a foundation. And so if you do a foot fault in your liquidity management, it will resonate for years because you will have to liquidate something at just the wrong time to, to sort of save yourself. And so trying to avoid that is paramount. And in an endowment, it's much more about controlling drawdowns and controlling um, volatility because the university's various constituencies build budgets and build strategy around the stability of the endowment. There are lots of different tools for liquidity in a university, including inflows from alumni, you have tuition, you have usually lines of credit, you have reserves. There are just many more forms of liquidity available to access than you have at a foundation, but volatility is much more important. So when I think about that, clearly the construction of the portfolio is going to be different and you're going to value different strategies more or less depending on how much they contribute to that. So historically, and, and it continues, and I expect to continue this, Columbia has been a risk allocator, not necessarily asset allocator. So they didn't have an asset allocation framework. They had a risk allocation framework. The idea behind it being that it is actually easier to assess risk than it is to assess returns. I don't know if I believe that, but supposedly the data proves that. But I think there, I think it's difficult to do both, quite honestly. I don't think either one of them is easy to do. And you get it directionally right, and neither are precise. 
but just say if you're directionally trying to figure out how much risk you're taking on and therefore how much volatility you're creating and what the potential drawdown is, it's an important thing for us to do at an endowment. And so we'll continue to be risk allocated and we'll continue to think about how to balance that out. As a result of it being a risk allocation framework, it tended to not have a ton of venture in it, right? Venture is a really hard thing to figure out sort of the risk parameters around if you are not a person who has done it for a long time, right? And the prior leadership at Columbia had a strong hedge fund background and I've done more privates, right? And so rightly or wrongly, my perception of my ability to assess risk in privates is higher probably than theirs was. And so we're likely to have a much more um, developed privates portfolio than exists in the past. And we're going to have to take that from other parts of the portfolio. So thankfully, the university made a decision earlier this year to divest from fossil fuels. And so it's a very easy source right there because we're, we're no longer going to be doing some of the resources investments we were doing in the past. And so that's an easy place to take from. The One of the, the great things is coming from a place where I spent so much time thinking about liquidity management and just lots of models around it, lots of nuance around it. And so we're going to bring a little bit more liquidity management into how we think about things and, and hope to increase the amount of illiquidity that we can take. Because that was the other thing. They they used a sort of a, a blunt instrument to manage liquidity before, which naturally pushes out illiquid asset classes. But it, it Carnegie, in order for us to do so much illiquid assets, we had to have a much more nuanced liquidity model. So we're going to bring that more nuanced liquidity model into it so that we can have more venture and private equity. So that's the biggest change that's probably going to happen. And there's, there is a philosophy around managing downside. There is a philosophy around manager selection being the primary driver of performance. And, and that'll still be the number one thing that will add alpha is, is my hope. But we're also going to layer in a little bit more portfolio construction and a little bit more asset allocation and sort of thinking around that. And that, that'll, that'll come in because of being able to manage liquidity differently. Another thing that was the way Columbia was set up was it was set up as a generalist model. So everybody did everything. And I've moved it to a hybrid model because I think it's very challenging to manage a private equity and venture portfolio as a generalist, not because a generalist can't pick great managers, but successful investing in privates is to have take a long-term view of what you want that portfolio to look like and be proactive and wait for the fat pitch, right? So you can't respond to whether this is a good investment or not a good investment. It's, is it a good or not a good investment compared to what I think I can access whenever I think I can access it. And so you're, you're not just making a, a judgment versus the other thing that has come in or the other thing that I've seen or other asset classes. You're making a judgment against the potential of what you think you can see. And so someone has to be focused on that. And so I needed to create an environment where there was someone responsible for portfolio construction in the private assets. And so as soon as you do that, then someone else has to be responsible for the liquid assets because they will absolutely have to fill in the gaps when private doesn't produce or use whatever capital privates produces when you can't redeploy it into private. So 
we needed those two to, to work together, but someone to be very thoughtful about how that's constructed. And so that's the biggest changes that are happening at the IMC right now. And, you know, none of it purposely says anything about what has been in place. Because I actually think that the prior leadership did a tremendous job. I mean, it's just an amazing portfolio, just well, everything that they actually put in the portfolio is incredible, but we just have to change the weightings and we have to change the way we think about the private's portfolio. And I just think it just, it, it required somebody who, who has done that and has thought about it that way. Looking back on having you know, spent a lot of time in tech, you know, sort of through the 90s and 2000s era and into the current environment. How does the current environment inform what you're doing with tech and what you're, how you're thinking about the role of venture, frankly, within the portfolio? So technology, for all the reasons I love it, is exactly the reasons why it's a scary asset class, right? It's so much momentum in tech investing because people don't exactly know how it works. Most people investing in it don't exactly know how it works, right? So I say all the time, I don't know how my cell phone works. It's like the miracle is a miracle and I'm glad it works. I don't really know how it works. So I think equity markets are by their nature optimistic. They want to believe the story. Technology is that on steroids until something happens that make people believe, oh no, I've gotten it all wrong. And then it comes to an end. It was true in, in 99 right? Like people were so focused on like how exciting the story was. And then all of a sudden it became true that this doesn't work anymore. And it like, we've, we've gotten ahead of ourselves and it all came crashing down. That is true today, but everything else around it is different today. So here's what I think is different. One, I think in 99, I was making an absolute decision about the value of an investment. And now I'm making a relative decision and an absolute decision, Right. Most of the capital is managed by institutions. Institutions have to be fully invested. Institutions have to be fully invested. And we all have a 7% hurdle. People call it different things, but it's all 7% or higher, right? 5% plus inflation for foundations, your payout plus hippie for endowment, your usually something around seven to eight, 9% for a pension fund. Everybody has a really high hurdle. So they're making, and we have to be fully invested. We have to figure out a way to hit that mark. In 99, people still believed you could get that through the equity markets. Now people don't think you can get it through the equity markets because the equity markets feel so frothy. So people are making a relative decision and looking for ways that they feel like they can understand or de-risk and possibly hit that return, right? So to ignore that reality means that you're going to miss things. And also technology is pervasive now. There is nothing, there's no part of your day that isn't touched by technology in some meaningful way. It's hard to say this is the tech sector. Every sector is the tech sector. So when you couple all those things together and realize that you're investing in different pieces that drive different parts of the industry in different ways, it's easy to see that the potential and see value there. We will get ahead of ourselves. But if we get ahead of ourselves, then you got to think about what else are we going to invest in, right? Like we can't not invest in anything. That's not an option. There was a period of time when people, when they got nervous, they would put it in fixed income. No one can do that now because interest rates are so low. I don't know. Are interest rates going to increase? Everybody's saying that there's inflation now. I for sure believe there's a potential for inflation now because I wasn't super worried about inflation until we got to the place where there was capacity constraints, lots of capacity constraints because of technology. 
And so I see the risk of inflation, which means we could have interest rates increasing, but are they increasing enough that there'll be an alternative for equities? Not clear to me right now, right? Which means we're still going to be making relative decisions about the best place to put our equity dollars. So I think it, it lasts for a while and it's going to be the nuances in what technology you invest in, not that you're not going to be doing the technology. The nuances is going to be what types of managers, how you build, what kind of optionality exists in the managers you have, how skillful they are. I think that there's always going to be somebody who does well, and you're going to hope to be in as many of those as possible. And that's always been the case, quite honestly, right? Even venture managers, there's all, even in the worst, worst of times, somebody did well, right? Like somebody made money. So it's a question of whether you can construct a portfolio that gives you the greatest access to the people who are going to do well. And that's what I mean about making sure that we had the team focused on the construction of the portfolio and make, making sure that we touched as many good managers as we could, knowing that they won't all do well at the same time. Yeah. And how does that play out sort of practically in terms of having the, like managing those commitments, you know, what does it look like to uh, work with some of the groups or some of the managers you've been with a long time versus, you know, to come into a a new relationship with with the manager? So in particularly thinking about the venture portfolio, I don't think that any of us can rely on just more of the same old managers. We're gonna have to fund new managers for a variety of reasons. One, because Different entrepreneurs require different things. And so there was a period of time where I think in venture, the winners were the ones that had capital, right? And then it became the winners were the one who had networks. So the the networks were either that, you know, there was the Cisco network and there was the Microsoft network and it was the, the, you know, just that was back in the day networks, right? And now, then now it's the PayPal network and the Google network. And, you know, it was, it was about networks. And then there became a period where it was about entrepreneurs. Who could develop the best relationship with entrepreneurs? Because it didn't take as much money to start a business. The internet and TikTok and Instagram and all these other Reddit and, you know, Wall Street, but all these different things made it possible for you to build your networks outside of the venture capitals. So it became about coaching and developing entrepreneurs. And now I think it's very much dependent on the sector. Like different sectors need different things. Some people need networks. Some people need capital. Some people need entrepreneur holding hands. Some people need um, international relationships. Different entrepreneurs need different things and different entrepreneurs will go to different sources of capital based on what they need. And so we've got to construct a portfolio that is very conscious of that. And there are some big players who have been very successful about transitioning their teams to reflect how the market is changing. And there's some that aren't, right? And so some of the old guard will remain successful because they're very thoughtful about that transition and have done it before. A lot of them have gotten it right in the past and a little challenging now, right? Like, so even that, even the fact that you've done it in the past is not necessarily a precursor that you can continue to do it in the future, but let's just assume that the fact that you've done it in the past is a sign that you could be successful at. So there are some of those that we would love to continue to support and figure out, but many won't. Many have never done it and there's no sign that they can't do it. And so you're going to have to build relationships with other investors because there's always some new investors that emerge. And 
sometimes they become like powerhouses that last forever. I, I think of one of my favorite venture capital firms was Emergence. There was a period of time when Emergence came up when no one thought this little fund was going to become what it became, right? It chose this niche strategy, software as a service or tech-enabled services. And people were like, I don't even know what tech-enabled services is. And, and they were the entrepreneurs, venture capitalists. People liked them. They just were nice. You know, like you think to yourself, can nice actually be a competitive advantage? Yeah, it was, right? Like nice was a competitive advantage. It shouldn't be, but it shouldn't have be. to be. It shouldn't have to be. You would think, right? And I think at the time people were shocked that they grew up to be what they are now, which is one of like the great firms out there. There are tons of those that are out there to be found. And it is a matter of people being able to understand the needs of the market and find the one that has the niche that capitalizes on that, which is why it's a skill that finding new managers is a skill because you've got to be able to, you've got to be able to understand that nuance of the market and you've got to be able to, to really see that this person has the potential to fill that need. And a lot of people don't think about it that way. It's so much about pattern recognition. It's so much about repeating what has been successful in the past and not looking at sort of like, this is how this market is evolving. It's sort of going to want to need this skill. Like, does anybody here look like they have that skill? It just, it requires something different on the part of LPs and it requires something different on the part of GPs. So I think we're constantly looking for that. We're constantly trying to sort of fight through it. And like, is this advantage that they have in this moment sustainable a lot of times we see things where you're like, no, 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 that looks, that's an advantage. I see it. This team will never be able to capitalize on that advantage because they don't play nice together or they play too nice together. Or, you know, there's no adult in the room here or there's too many adults in the room here, right? Like there's, so it can fail in a lot of different ways. So you've got to marry all those things together, which is why I love venture, right? It's a really hard asset class to invest in. So much fun when you get it right, right? <laughs> like, Absolutely. And when you know, how do you actually assess or get to the heart of some of these issues? You know, and and I'm thinking about the world that we're transitioning from into, right? From a mostly virtual Zoom, you know, phone call type world to now transitioning back into meeting people in person, being able to develop, you know, relationships with teams. I guess are there either particular questions or parts of your diligence process where you can really uncover some of these yeah, insights? Yeah. So I always say, you know it when you see it, it's really hard. That's why I'm like, I don't know how people are trying to program things to figure these. I was like, I don't know how, because I don't even know what it, what it is all the time. But I will say that it's about consistency. So there are many, many ways to make money. I have now gotten to see up close the Carnegie portfolio and the Columbia portfolio. There was almost no overlap between the two portfolios. I think that we might have four managers in common. That's it. Out of like 100, 150 or managers, right? Like tons of managers. Maybe four of them were similar. And I mean, across the portfolio, there's probably, I think there was only two common venture managers. And if you look at the 10-year track record, they're close. It's about this consistency in execution of a strategy. And if all the pieces are working together to create value. And so- there are some venture managers that you'll look at and you'll ask them questions and you're like, okay, well, if this is true, that can't be true. Someone, this is not working well together. So it's hard for me to give examples, but you'll, you'll see sometimes where someone will say something like, we are looking to find the very best ideas in this space. This is all we do. We execute on this. 
et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then I'll say something like, okay, so, you know, one of my favorite questions is what creates social capital in this organization? Like, what is the thing that you may or may not get paid for, but everybody gets an attaboy, right? Like, it's the thing that you're like, that's a baller right there. When I see that happen, that's it. Is that thing consistent with your strategy? Is your strategy that we do the same thing over time, over and over again, but the attaboys are in creativity? The attaboys is in the, the totally out of the box thing. Somebody's wrong, right? Like there's somebody wrong, right? So it's really about the consistency in your messaging. I think it's really hard to get that if you are virtual. I know that when I'm talking to a GP on Zoom and they say something crazy, I text my team. I say, that thing was crazy. Did you hear it? Because I heard crazy, right? In person, you can't do that. In person, you've got to wait to hear the whole story and then talk about it later. And maybe somebody has, maybe fixes it by the end. If I'm in a room with you, I'm respectful of relationships. I'm staying engaged with you, right? Like, I'm not going to do that. So I want to get back to that place where we are actually meeting in person and we're actually like, I'm hurt. I'm learning about your family. Like, so like, you don't do that when you're online. You sort of get to business, right? Like we're like, nobody likes it, but I'm like, so about your kids. Like, what's your life like? Like, you know, what you do for fun? You know, like just a lot of that, not less of that. It's in those conversations, you realize, oh, this person is a risk taker. Oh, they're risk takers. Like that's who they are. This is, that's a bad thing, right? Like, is that a good thing for this strategy or a bad thing for this strategy? Right. Are there either one or two sort of areas or one or two, you know, newer managers that you've gotten excited about? Yeah. yeah look, you know what, quite honestly, I want to be excited every time, right? I want it to be unusual every time. And so nine times out of 10, I'm excited when someone can be very transparent about the use case of the technology. Cause I don't really, I'm, I'm clear. I don't really understand the technology all the time. So it's about the use case for me and like really getting excited. So there's a million different ways, right? I moderated a a crypto and blockchain panel yesterday and our team has done a lot of work on it. I don't know how, like, I don't, every time someone tries to explain to me proof of work versus proof of stake, I really quite get it, right? I can repeat it to you and I can tell you exactly what they've said to me. I don't really quite get it, right? But when you explain the use cases to me and you explain how to protect or not protect against um, fraud or you explain to me how it works and how it protects, I get it, right? Like, and I can get excited about it. And then I can say to myself, the moment at which that becomes compelling and where you reduce the volatility and it becomes something that we can value, I can get it. I love those moments when it's like, I don't really, this is so far ahead of me. AI is so far ahead of me. VR is so far ahead of my capacity. But we start talking about use cases and we talk. We start talking about the things that I need to to focus on in order to assess value. And it gets really exciting. So it's hard for me to pinpoint because there's a lot of things that I've heard that are exciting, that are true tech things. And then there's just use cases for tech, right? Like I love when someone comes in and they offer me some insights on how they now have reimagined what retail will look like, right? Like we just reimagine, like we're going to make a bot of what you look like and we're going to put clothes on it. And we're going to be, I'm like, I was like, I love that because I hate going into stores. Like whatever, like all of that, you, it's the, it's the explanation of what can be done. That is exciting to me. So there's no technology that's too crazy for us to not consider. 
And at the same time, if, if you're being creative about an established industry, that can also be exciting. So it's hard for me to, to say. I am really fascinated about AI right now, probably as much because I think that people believe that it is equitable and I don't believe it. I believe that mm. you can program bias into systems just the way people are biased. And I think um, it's a it's an area that's going to be fraught and success is going to come from the people who really utilize diversity and inclusion and equity in a really powerful way. So we're going to see it there immediately. So that's kind of exciting to me. Since you mentioned it, I have to ask about uh, crypto and blockchain and how you're thinking about you know, where that fits into your portfolio and maybe how you and the team decided to explore it. Yeah. So I, I don't, I don't think there's any idea that the team shouldn't explore, right? Like any road, you should go down every road. I think blockchain and crypto are the future. I don't know the point at which it becomes the thing. And I guess maybe I'm more committed to the concepts around blockchain and the use cases of things like smart contracts and all the applications that sit on top of the the networks of like Ethereum and Bitcoin as much as anything else and all the sort of picks and shovels around it. All of that's really exciting to me. And, you know, in the ways, quite honestly, that it takes risk out of the system and it modernized an antiquated banking system and it provides some stability to emerging countries. And I mean, all the different use cases are exciting. I know that it's going to be a thing, but honestly, at this moment, I said to you earlier, my job is to minimize volatility. There's only so much I can do in in blockchain. I spend a lot of resources trying to figure out ways to dampen volatility. We pay managers that dampen volatility, a lot of money to do that. And then I'm going to spend that money on Bitcoin and blockchain with everything about it is volatile. Of course, I want to invest. We're never going to be able to know it if we don't invest. But there's a, there's a finite amount of the portfolio I'm going to put into that. Like, I just can't afford to have a meaningful investment at that until it stabilizes some. And I know it's volatile on the upside, but the interim volatility is a problem for my portfolio. So I have to, so I'm going to control the amount that I invest in it until um, people feel more confident about the use cases. But if you're asking me if I believe that will happen, I absolutely believe that will happen. I'm a big believer in the future of blockchain and crypto. I just don't think it, it can play a meaningful part of our portfolio right now because of all the other things that are important. Completely makes sense. Completely makes sense. Yeah, it'd be great to circle back on you know this point about uh, diversity and inclusion. It's been particularly relevant in the venture discussion, you know, you've taken a leadership role on it at Carnegie. And how are you thinking about, you know, bringing that over or what you've brought over to Columbia? Yeah. So yes, I thought a lot about it, you know, for selfish reasons. And also because I, I really believe that our job as allocators and investors, especially of institutions that are long-term in nature is to be forward-looking and the demographics are clear, Right. The demographics of where the United States is going is clear. The demographics of the rise of the rest of the world is clear, right? It is the emerging markets that are young and productive. And I'm not saying that the developed markets are lagging, but they are not growing at the same pace. And so we're going to have to have uh, some real insights on the rest. So in order to have a real 
insight in how to invest in the rest, you have to have a sense of the cultural difference, right? Like you really have to be able to wrap your arms around the fact that people are going to invest differently and are going to be valued differently. I'll give you an example. Everybody talks about China. Obviously, I care a lot about China and it's an important region for me. Um, I also am very clear that when I analyze a China venture fund, I cannot believe that I'm going to get my money back in the same way. Culturally, I use we, we are dynasty builders, right? That is a cultural value. And so if it's a great company out there and I have seeded it, I always want to have a little piece of that, right? That's a cultural, I think it's cultural. It's cultural in my family, right? <laughs> like there is, you never want to completely sell out of that, right? We're in the United States, you sell it, you move on, you do the next one. That's just not culturally how it's done. And so I have to think about that investing differently. When I go into Africa, when I go into Latin America, I'm sure there's the same type of nuance. I can think of China differently because it feels more personal to me. But there's all these places I have to think about like that, right? So before I can get good at analyzing other countries, let's just figure out how to analyze the United States, great? Right? <laughs> because there's lots of cultural difference, geographic cultural differences, ethnic cultural differences, tons of cultural differences. And we invest like we are. We invest at the average it's a mistake, right? And increasingly, the nuance of the not average is going to become important. And so I want to really um, spend a lot of time thinking about that. So I know, and I don't mean this as badly as it's going to sound, but I know that this industry, all the industries, so not this industry, all the industries in the United States have been staffed largely. So 80% of the jobs have been staffed with 35% of the population, right? White males are 35% of the population, 40%. Let's just say 40, let's be aggressive. 40% of the population have 80% of the leadership jobs. Some of them are average, right? Look, it's just the nature of it. Not all of them are exceptional. So if we want to move to a place where we are always investing in the top quartile, we got to increase the amount of diversity. I just believe, I believe that. I believe in the concept of sort of intellect, and like ability is evenly distributed and opportunity is not. And so we have to, in, we have to increase the opportunity set because that ultimately needs to better performance, right? Because that person in the room is going to be able to provide that insight, right? That maybe you didn't think of before. Like, I feel like every time I say, stop thinking China is going to give you your money back, that's an insight. I'm telling you, whether you listen to it or not, I'm trying to tell you that you should listen to it, right? And there's all that type of stuff. I've been in rooms where people have said things like, I don't understand why more people aren't investing in wealth management online. And I was like, because you've never been poor. That's why. Like, I have been poor. I, I understand that the only investing I did was through my 401k, right? Like, like that's not how you, like, like your perception comes from your history. And the more people you have in a room that have different backgrounds who have experienced the world differently, the better the decision-making will be. It just, it just has to be the, the truth, right? And so because, especially because I got to Columbia, I got 10 years in front of me, I hope. If I get 10 years in front of me, I better be thinking about what creates value and what seeds I can plant now so that 10 years from now, we're still outperforming. Diversity and inclusion is one of them. 
It just has to be one of them. And so we, we have to spend a lot of time focusing on that and getting better. And I, and I can't view it and I don't view it as social good. Of course, we should want the world to be a better place. And I want to do my part to make the world a better place. But I also am very clear that our portfolio performance will not be better unless we fix this problem. You mentioned earlier that the endowment's divesting energy uh, assets, fossil fuel assets. Um, are there, is there a broader sort of framework for ESG? And So um, that's a tough one, right? Because I don't think there's any CEO, CIO of an investment management company that wants to have more, ha- have their hands tied more, right? So that's on the one hand. Like I want as little restrictions as I can. But on the other hand, which is just as important to me. I think the investment office should be culturally aligned with the institution it serves. So when Columbia came to me and said that they wanted to put in a divestment policy, I didn't hesitate for a second. Of course you do. You have a climate school, you have an earth institute, you have dedicated unimaginable resources to solving this problem. The investment office should be aligned with that. So when they said you can't invest in energy anymore, fine. Right. Like, of course, that's one thing you've taken off. Right. Like there are moments when it's going to hurt me. It's moments like now. Right. Or the last 10 years where it would have helped the endowment not to be involved in them. So it's kind of a double edged sword. Right. Like it's it helps and it hurts. But if it's anything and everything, then it gets harder. Right. Like so the more things you take out, the harder it it is to do the principal goal, which is to make enough money to support all the things that the institution does, right? My primary goal is still returns, but there are ways that we are willing to make money and there are ways that we are not willing to make money. So for me, the DE&I and the climate stuff were so loud at Columbia, right? It was clearly a core value of theirs. And so of course I should be in support of the things that were core values. Other things probably not so much, right? But in a world of many different ways to make money, Columbia has said, I don't want to make money that way. I get it. We, we are willing to miss out on that because that is not the way we want to make money. And I think every institution has going to have to decide for themselves the ways they don't want to make money. And they are willing to not do that. Right. And so we'll see what else gets added on over time. And I think that the other thing about Columbia, which I love, is the fact that it is very nuanced in the way it approaches things like this. It, 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 there is a population that is very diverse in the way they think about things. And so they're very practical about how they approach things. And so, yes, we are not, we are divesting from fossil fuels. We are not investing in new private managers in the in the um, fossil fuel arena. But everybody's very clear that fossil fuels are not going away. Like no one gives, no one's giving up their cell phone. No one's giving up their contact lenses. I'm not giving up my contact lenses. So there will be fossil fuels. And so we should also be trying to figure out how to make those people who are engaged in the industry as constructive as they can be, right? So it's not total divestment. It is... We're going to start out by divesting from the industry, and then we're going to figure out who the good players are. 
And we're going to see if there are ways that we can support the players who are trying to reduce their carbon footprint, who are trying to do it in the most effective ways. We're going to offset that by investing in strategies that are substitutes so that the things that you can stop doing with fossil fuels, we stop doing. And the things that continue to have to do that, we can do it cleaner, more responsibly. So it's kind of a two-edged approach to it. I think that's exactly right. I don't always like the hypocrisy of people who are like, you know, I want us to solve the climate problem. I'm probably not going to be alive when it's the big problem, but my grandkids will be, right? So I need us to solve this problem. So I want to play my part in us solving this problem. I am in no way a climate denier. I'm all for it. I just think we have to be practical. Absolutely. And it's a huge you know, focus area and trend in venture and entrepreneurship. Any commentary around your, you know, your experience specifically focused on venture and climate? So we're, we're trying to um, see more climate-focused venture managers, and we're trying to spend more time with them. A lot of times, it's just in the past, it's been like the underwriting doesn't meet the return hurdle for the risk. It's the risk-adjusted return wasn't correct. I think it's that's starting to wane, right, when it becomes cheaper and cheaper to produce some of these alternative energy sources, then it becomes more possible for it for us to actually make a risk-adjusted return. I also think that if a risk-adjusted return requires subsidies, it's a problem because they will get snatched out from under you. Like we've seen that, right? Like we had a government that believed and then a government that didn't believe and then a government that believes. And like, if you're, we're long-term investors, if your strategy is dependent on the administration believing it, I don't know that I can underwrite that properly. So there's all sorts of things that I, um, I haven't figured out yet. So what's a, a, a recent, you know, favorite book that you've recommended? Oh, so I love everything Adam Grant writes. Think again, right? This is his most recent book. I love it. And how about uh, a, a guilty TV binge series? So I'm addicted to television. And I tell people all the time, when people say, what is your biggest waste of time? It's television. And it's on in my house all the time. So probably the biggest, like, well, not the biggest trashy thing, but the thing that I, series I just got through is Lucifer. Yes, trash. I know. I like it. What's, you know, one new thing you're really excited about and slash worried about trying in the, uh, in the next year? The things I hope to try are always around food. Like, <laughs> like I'm, I'm willing to try a lot of things that people are not willing to try. So I'm always just like, yeah, if you, you know, I feel like I come from two cultures that will eat every part of every animal. So clearly I'm prepared. <laughs> yep. The feet, the toes. Everything. Everything. <laughs> Um, last question. I, uh, I have a almost two-year-old daughter at home and then another one uh, on the way. Do you have any advice for an aspiring or early in their career tiger dad? So I did obviously get raised by an indisputable tiger dad. Um, I think that this, in, the, in the moment, I did nothing but complain about it. But the thing I think my father did incredibly well is set really high expectations, really high expectations, and always couple that with, and I am 100% sure you have the capacity to reach it, right? It was like, it. there was never, I never got bashed. It was never, the feedback was always like, no, I expect this of you because I know you are capable. And there was never, ever a moment where I did not feel unconditional love. It, if I fail at this, He's going to be disappointed because he 100% believes I can do it, but he still will love me. 
And I think you have to couple that high expectations with that sense of belief in your child and that sense of like, it doesn't matter because we all mess up, right? Like, and so in those mess up, it doesn't change the dynamic. And I think that's where it kind of comes undone sometimes. Like, like it, those things aren't coupled together. He did a really good job of coupling those things together. Wow, what a wonderful way to end the conversation. It's been so wonderful. Yeah. Thank you Thank so you. much, Thank you. Thank you for having me. This podcast was created by Notation, a pre-seed venture firm based in Brooklyn, New York. We invest in product-focused teams on day zero. You can find us on Twitter at Notation Capital. We want to thank our hosts for this season, Sapphire Partners. Be sure to follow their OpenLP initiative on Twitter and sign up for a monthly newsletter of LP and GP perspectives on OpenLP.com. Thank you.